סופות מתוכי The most life-changing moments often occur unexpectedly. My relationship to Judaism changed drastically one evening at a Shabbat dinner in Israel. I was teaching English in a religious elementary school in the city of Beersheva at the time. A teacher whom I worked with, named Tehillah, invited me to her home in the desert city of Netivot. So I sat down to dinner with Tehillah, her husband Eviatar, and her eight or so children. As we were waiting for the main course to be served, I got into a casual conversation with Eviatar about nothing in particular. Yet, Eviatar would make a comment to me which would alter the course of my life trajectory. To this day, I find it astonishing how a trivial dialogue can sometimes impact one more than, say, reading a thousand-page book or traveling to the other end of the globe or spending dozens of hours with a therapist. As it turned out, before we sat down to dinner, I went with Eviatar to the local synagogue. And while I was there, sitting next to Eviatar at the synagogue, I fell asleep in the middle of the praying. Later, at the dinner table, Eviatar started to joke around with me. He laughed and said, Why are you so tired? Don't you ever take a day off? At that point in my life, I wasn't keeping Shabbat at all, so I told him, no, not really, but I try to sleep in late on Sundays and go on vacations when I can. He answered, this is why we have Shabbat. If you keep Shabbat every week, you will get all the rest you need and you won't need days off. Then he asked me, so what do you do to relax? I told him that I meditated. He laughed again. You don't need to meditate, he answered. You just need to pray. Just pray. That's even better than meditation. That was all he said of relevance that evening. The food came out and the conversation turned toward other subjects. Eviatar, whether he knew it or not, and he almost certainly did know it, was actually making a very compelling argument. He was saying that Judaism is set up in a way to make our lives better. All of these self-help books which we read to make life flow better for us are often superfluous and unnecessary. Judaism and the Torah already figured out how to live long ago. For many Jews, particularly religious Jews, this probably seems to be an obvious point. Yet for me at the time, this idea was absolutely not obvious. As Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song shows, When you grow up in America as a secular Jew, a tendency arises in which one sees Judaism more as a burden than as a gift. At least, this is how it was for me. I thought of Shabbat not as a chance to unwind, but as a draconian law imposed upon me to make my life less fun. This feeling probably goes back to when I was a child and I was forced to go to synagogue on Saturday mornings instead of being able to play soccer or watch cartoons or when I wasn't allowed to eat pizza at my friend's birthday parties when they occurred over Passover, and all I could eat was matzah. For prayer, the same thing. I was never told that prayer offered psychological and therapeutic benefits. I just saw it as a tedious and onerous obligation that my religion arbitrarily imposed upon me. Nevertheless, as a thinking child, I tried to find some way to make sense of all this, 
And I basically concluded, no pain, no gain. Judaism is a religion in which you suffer because that suffering will one day be rewarded. The more God sees you making sacrifices for him, the less you enjoy yourself in his honor, the more God will, eventually, like you. This attitude I had is almost unmistakable from Puritan Christianity. And I don't think it's coincidence that I grew up in a country founded by Puritans in a town just a six-hour drive away from Salem, Massachusetts. But then came Eviatar, and with just a few words, Eviatar magically swept away all of these dangerous misconceptions I had about Judaism, built up and encrusted onto my soul over the course of years. But what did Eviatar really say? He said, essentially, that Judaism is here to help. But this help comes not by self-flagellating yourself in order to make God happy. Rather, the customs and laws of Judaism are themselves life tips. If you do them, your quality of life will increase. If you ignore them, your quality of life will go down. It's that simple. Or put another way, Eviatar said that you need Judaism far more than Judaism needs you. You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 27, Second Kings 5. But was Eviatar merely saying that the Torah is humanity's best self-help book? Not exactly. Notice what Eviatar posited. Why meditate when you can pray? Eviatar acknowledged the benefits of meditation, but he then indicated that praying has certain advantages which meditation cannot provide. What these advantages are, however, he did not say. To better understand what Eviatar was getting at, let us turn to the concept of Buddhism in the philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer and his disciple Friedrich Nietzsche. Schopenhauer was a reluctant Buddhist. He kept a small statue of Buddha on his desk. But Schopenhauer came to Buddhism, not with excitement, but rather in resignation. Schopenhauer was known as the great pessimist of philosophy because he believed that life, at its core, is nothing but disappointment. He once wrote, quote, Politeness is like blowing someone a kiss. There is nothing of any worth inside it, but it makes the hardship of life a little less unbearable, unquote. Schopenhauer loved women, culture, food, and leisure. And yet, he realized that all of the satisfaction he got from these pursuits inevitably ended in dissatisfaction. The women he loved, he eventually lost. The food he relished, he eventually ate. The opera he gleefully attended, too, always had its moment when the curtain came down. Schopenhauer recognized, in short, that he chased after cravings in order to bring meaning into his godless world. 
and satisfying these cravings could give him nothing more than temporary pleasure, which quickly devolved into pain. For Schopenhauer, the solution was to withdraw, to stop craving. He found this teaching in Buddhism. Like the Buddha, Schopenhauer concluded that life is suffering, and that the most reliable way to mitigate this suffering is to withdraw from the craving satisfaction cycle. Nietzsche was very troubled by Schopenhauer's praise of Buddhism. Nietzsche found it deeply unsettling that the way to thrive in life was to remove oneself from experience and to arm oneself against suffering. In response, Nietzsche viciously attacked Schopenhauer's Buddhism as a form of nihilism. He described Buddhism as, quote, spiritually enervating, unquote, and as a religion for the weak and debauched. Now, to be sure, Nietzsche clearly did not fully understand Buddhism and handles this ancient Lebensphilosophie recklessly. Nietzsche seems to approach Buddhism through juvenile, misinformed stereotypes he learned along the way. For one thing, Buddhism does not advocate a withdrawal from experience, as Nietzsche claims, but rather an embrace of all experiences and emotions. In fact, if Nietzsche had taken the time to really understand Buddhism, he would have discovered that it has an awful lot in common with his own philosophy. Nevertheless, what I do think Nietzsche rightly hit upon was that Buddhism, as enlightening and rejuvenating and cleansing as it might be, still seems to be missing something. Or as Eviatar told me, why meditate when you can pray? To this, Eviatar might have added, why read the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm when you can read the Bible? In the early 19th century, the Grimm brothers collected folk stories from all over the German lands. Many of these are well known in today's popular culture. Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Beauty and the Beast, Rapunzel, and so forth. Like the stories in the Torah, these fairy tales offer moral lessons, can be endlessly read and analyzed, and provide readers with a sense of identity, German identity specifically. In fact, one of the motivations for the Grimm brothers to go all over the countryside collecting these stories was to provide Germans with their own cultural tradition to give Germans a sense of identity. Germany was suffering, we might say, an identity crisis at that time. It was a patchwork collection of miniature kingdoms, each speaking its own dialect, surrounded by ever-centralizing powers like France and Austria and Russia. In fact, according to the historian Goetz Ally, Germany wanted what the Jews already had possessed for millennia, a book of tales to be passed down from generation to generation, a core set of heroes and morals, a rootedness in folk tradition. There is no question that the fairy tales of the Grimm brothers gave German culture a center of gravity, if you will, and helped mold the burgeoning German spirit. But when put side by side with the Torah, the Grimm brothers' fairy tales simply cannot compare, for reasons so obvious that it is not even necessary to state them. The Haftarah reading for the Parsha of Tatsriah comes from the second book of Kings. It tells the story of a man named Naaman, who was the king of Aram. Naaman was a famous general working for the Syrian army. And Naaman had leprosy, or some skin condition. One day, his army went on a raid of Israel and brought back with them an Israeli woman 
who would become the maid or the servant to Naaman's wife. Now in Syria, the maid saw Naaman's leprosy and told Naaman that she could help him. There was a prophet in her homeland of Israel who could cure leprosy, a man named Elisha. And so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the gate of the house of Elisha. Elisha's instructions to Naaman were rather simple. He told King Naaman, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and afterward your leprosy will be gone, your skin will be clean. Naaman was outraged. Why did I have to come all the way to Israel to bathe in a river? There are already rivers in Syria, the Ammonah and the Farpar rivers, and the rivers of Damascus are far superior to your Jordan River. In a way, he was correct. The Jordan River, particularly at certain parts, is meandering, narrow, and unremarkable, even dirty. The rivers of Syria, by contrast, are far more lush and flowing. Naaman was ready to return home when his servants tried to reason with him. You came all the way here, they told him. Why not wash yourself in the river, as Elisha suggested? Maybe it will work. Here we ought to quote the book of Kings directly to see what happened. Quote, then Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to Elisha's suggestion, and his flesh came back as though it were the skin of a small child, and he was finally clean. Unquote. The late chief rabbi of England, Joseph Hertz, wrote in response to this story, The waters of India and Greece, of Italy and Germany, may be far greater, stronger, clearer, but they cannot restore moral health to the ailing soul of man. In the crisis of life, whether of the individual or of humanity, we turn not to the Vidas or to Homer, nor to Dante or Goethe, but to the book of Psalms." Unquote. This was, I think, the main point which Eviatar wished to convey to me. It is wonderful to take a day off. It is great to meditate. There's nothing wrong with either of those. But Shabbat and prayer, the Jewish versions of these self-help tips, are superior. But why? They are superior not just because they've been perfected over centuries, but also because they have something special and magical about them. Or put another way, they have something divine to them. This is what I think Nietzsche felt was missing from Buddhism. Nothing divine, nothing supernatural, nothing otherworldly. Dante and Goethe and even the Brothers Grimm wrote fantastic literature, but it has no claims to divinity. And when you are suffering, whether it be from leprosy or just a bad toothache, Reaching for the tomes of Shakespeare just feels inadequate when compared with reaching for the Torah. Consider then taking Eviatar's advice and praying rather than just meditating. The two practices are nearly identical. Here is what both have in common. They bring the mind to stillness. They enable a separation between yourself and your ego. And they give a feeling of security and steadiness. The difference, however, is that with meditation, the goal is itself meditation. That is to say, there is no one listening other than yourself. With prayer, the objective is both meditation and, we might say, elevation. 
Prayer offers the consolation that someone is listening and that there is hope. Interestingly, even Buddhist meditations also recommend praying, not to a particular god, but just to the universe. This is known as a meta-meditation or self-compassion meditation. Ironically, Buddhism discovered that the act of praying, even if it is to no one, is highly therapeutic and consoling. Once again, we have come full circle back to Eviatar. Judaism had already figured out the most superior self-help tips long ago. And once more, Judaism has the upper hand. Because the consolation which comes from prayer, even Buddhist prayers to no one, still seems a bit paltry in comparison to that which envelops a person when rereading the words of King David in the book of Psalms.